I'm Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge Podcast. Before we get to this week's great conversation with Esther Tatro of Trillium Brewing, this is where I give you the pitch to help support us at Beer Edge. John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our very dear listeners. And this is where you can give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. You can go and buy a Defend Pills shirt or a Camp Rock beer mug, and it helps support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content and have 45 minutes to kill, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. We're always on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor and help support Beer Edge, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. I've lived in the Boston area for more than 20 years now, and there's just no cutting it. It's a weird city when it comes to beer. Perhaps due to Sam Adams and Jim Cook, the city has earned an outsized reputation in the craft beer world, in my opinion. Compared to any other city our size, population-wise, we should have way more breweries here, and way more beer bars. Yet Boston's beer reputation is big. And there is one likely reason that Boston is considered such a great beer city, and that is the focus of our episode today. Smart, dynamic, and funny, and with a deep-seated passion for continuous improvement, Esther Tatro was destined to run Trillium Brewing, the business she started with her husband, J.C., in 2013. While J.C. collects all the accolades for the beers he creates, and don't get me wrong, it's well-deserved, it's Esther who literally runs the show. And quite a show it has become. Entrepreneurship is rooted deep in Esther's essence, and Trillium is the perfect vessel in which to pour her considerable talents. She and JC have grown their once tiny nano operation into one of the most unlikely success stories in craft beer. Trillium is somehow only eight years old, but in that time, it has expanded exponentially, growing into a mini empire. And that's the result of this partnership between its founders. One on the creative side, one on the business side. The story behind Trillium's founding and its rise is a good one. Starting in a dumpy space that was never meant for brewing in downtown Boston, Trillium has grown to multiple locations throughout greater Boston. In our conversation, Esther and I discuss what it's like to be on a nonstop roller coaster of growth and expansion, whether Boston is truly a great beer city, and what the future holds for her Mrs. Trillium brand. Here's my conversation with Esther Tatro of Trillium Brewing. As the co-founder of Trillium, uh, your background was one of entrepreneurship and, and obviously through business school. But can you talk to us a little bit about you know, how, you, how you and your husband came to you know, start Trillium? Because this was not the first business that you had started. Yeah. Um, thank you for asking. So um, I suppose I have a bit of the entrepreneurial bug. And like for better or worse, I probably pushed JC off the ledge into this. But um, we, like you said, I started my own business before, um, not just once, but a couple of times. And after business school, as part of my own kind of independent business, I did consulting for small businesses. So I kind of had a foundation for that. And I really 
um, it might be a little bit crazy, but I kind of love the sink or swim nature of being totally responsible for my success or failure. And so um, I, when JC and I first got together, I had actually just started my own fitness business. And that was doing something that I love, that I was passionate about. And JC saw the transition in me of, you know, feeling kind of frustrated by a standard career path and just not really feeling free and fulfilled by doing whatever I wanted, like how I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so he, he saw that and recognized like how fulfilling that could be. And also JC is, I know you've talked to him before. He's a pretty passionate guy. Mm -hmm. He goes all into things that he really loves. And so um, together, when we were together, he started brewing, home brewing. And that really struck a chord for him. He was like, I think this is my thing. Like, I think that we could do this. Can we do this? This could be, this could be a business we create together. And I was like, yes, let's do it. And so I don't know that I really recognized um, how fully committed we mm -hmm. were going to be as quickly as we were. But um, yeah, so we started, we came up with the idea of Trillium and just kind of the concept in, in the lifestyle that we had hoped to create while we were planning our wedding. So sure. it was really kind of intrinsically linked to who we are and what we wanted to do with our lives. And so before I knew it, we had a lease and we were married and we had a baby and it was, you decided to just go, go in all at once. Um, what was J, you know, what was JC doing at that point? Well, he was um, director of clinical research for a medical device company. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of spent his career <clears throat> focused in on the administrative side of research for um, medicine and uh, medical devices. And so he had a really strong, I mean, homebrewing was obviously like a natural um I guess mm. click for it just clicked for yeah. him. Like he loves to create, but he also has kind of the knowledge and the passion for science. So he kept his job for, it took us, um, I'm sure you, <laughs> you've done your research on this. It took us over two years to actually get Trillium open. Oh, from... as I, I remember as somebody who anxiously awaited the oh, opening God. as somebody who lives in the Boston area. Um, it, oh was, God, it was yeah, so it, painful. It took, it took a while and we wondered whether that was going to happen. I also wondered whether it was going to happen. <laughs> so it took a really long time. And it actually, I mean, there was a point where we were like, this is it. I don't think we can do this anymore. Like, we're out of time. We're out of money. Like, we just can't move forward. Yeah. So JC was traveling internationally for work. And I still had my business. And at that point, we now had two small children. So, um, yeah, it was it was a real process there. And. At that point, how did you select Fort Point as the location to open a brewery? Uh, because you know, for those who don't know, you know, Boston is you know is a city of neighborhoods, but also one that you know it, it you know we don't have a ton of breweries in this city for a variety of reasons, and we'll talk about yeah. that a little later. But one of those reasons is there just isn't a ton of open space, and Fort Point yeah. is this odd sort of you know, new neighborhood, you know, essentially, um, that is sort of been born from a lot of surface parking lots, but also has a lot of interesting history as well. What attracted you to Fort Point and how, do, how would, you, would you describe Fort Point at that, that time uh, to folks? <laughs> well, 
I don't know that we sought out Fort Point specifically, but I will say um, we were connected through a mutual friend to a real estate broker. And um, he is actually, he's now become one of our great friends. He has literally helped us on every single project we've mm. worked on. And he basically, he never even got the commission for that project. <laughs> so he was basically helping us for fun and maybe a little bit of charity. Um, but JC used to meet him at like 6 a.m. to go look at properties all, I mean, all around. Everywhere. So we're looking for everywhere. So we're looking for light industrial. And you're right. That doesn't really exist in Boston. It's not really affordable in Boston. And so we were looking for about a year, I think. And then one day, Brian is his name. Brian sent JC an address and said, okay, meet me here tomorrow morning. And JC was like, no way. Like this is downtown Boston. Yeah. No way. And if you've been to our original Congress Street location, which we actually don't have anymore, um, now you can probably appreciate why we were able to make that possible. Yeah. Um, I say this with history and appreciation and love, but like, <laughs> wow, what a shithole that space was. I don't know if it's okay to swear on this podcast. Bleep me out if you need to, but like, no, I can't, man. I can't bleep that out. Cause that is the accurate description. That was my follow-up question, which was how in the <laughs> hell did you decide that this was the, cause for folks who haven't been there, you know, this was sort of in a time before tap rooms were really a thing. And then that was going to be a, a solid business model for folks. And you went in there and yeah. it was almost, it's like almost like a walk-in closet where the, where the tap room or the bar space would be. And you kind of had to shimmy past people, you know, you oh, know elbow yeah. to elbow. And then the production space itself didn't you know was not yeah it, it charitably could be so put as highly su dysfunctional such a challenge it looked like such a challenge we didn't know so i think there were we've learned so much in our well 10 years of doing all of this but like in the eight years we've been open we've learned so much and have tried to really build upon everything we've learned with each of our new locations um yeah that place was a total mess. Like we did the absolute best we could to op optimize efficiency in the least efficient space possible to put a brewery. And, you know, at some point, when did you realize that, you know, you both might be onto something because, you know, frankly, you know, at that point, you know, sort of hazy or juicy IPAs were, were not even really a thing. And you know, I guess to start, what was the business model? What were you planning on, on brewing and, and what was the approach? Yeah. Well, we had always planned to just kind of brew what we love. And so, um, we had always planned to have a diverse portfolio of beers. Like we were never, um, you know, we were never planning to like create hazy IPAs as a thing. Mm. And, you know, it's, for sure worked for and against us at times where we had no professional brewing experience, no professional manufacturing or even restaurant experience. And so we've just had our own careers, professional experiences of our own that have kind of shaped how we wanted to do things. And, and again, I, I mentioned that like freedom before to be in control and sure, maybe, maybe it would be a mistake, but um, you know, it, it was what felt right. So as it related to like the hazy beer, we were just looking to make an IPA or, well, a pale ale actually. So it was Fort Point Pale mm -hmm. Ale was our first hazy beer. If like, I mean, it just was. So when, when we made our first batch, um, it certainly did not look 
like what we were expecting it to look like. Mm -hmm. And, but the aromas were like so much more intense than other things that we were trying or drinking. And the flavor was like so juicy and fruity and just, it was really good. And so we were like, this is what I want to drink. And so again, we were, as you know, we were doing 64 ounce growlers at that time and that was it. And so, you know, there was kind of, uh, there was definitely a moment of like, this is the beer we want to make. Yes, it, I guess, is technically a pale ale. But no, we didn't feel like we needed to fit into the constraints of any particular style. So it's not like we were looking to try and adhere to style guides. We just wanted to make what we wanted to drink and what we enjoyed. And so we did a lot of experimentation. Like we every year, every year we've been open, I believe we put out more than 100 new beers. And so... You know, whether they were, yeah, so whether they were pilot batches or just kind of uh, riffs on things we'd done before, um, for us, continuous improvement is a huge part of, like, who we are and, and the way that we love to operate. We're always kind of tinkering and we love to learn and and just try and build upon things. And so that was the catalyst for us saying, like, okay, this, yep. This is what we make. This is what we love to drink. And as you know, like not everybody was on board with that. And that was okay because we were never really intending to reach a certain size, a certain scale. We just wanted to be able to do what we loved for our lives and make that possible for our careers um, and have, you know, at least some like a great community of people who loved it and who did want to be a part of that. And at that point, I mean, it's sort of crazy to think about the fact that all of this has happened in, in say, eight years. Uh, it, it, you know, to me, as someone who's an outsider, it feels like it has to be more like 15, but the growth rate has been... It feels like a million, Andy. I can only <laughs> imagine what it's like from the inside because, I, I, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of you know, kind of go-getters in the beer industry who have always taken on a new project or can't, can't sit still. But this situation, and maybe it was born of the fact that, you know, the four, the original location was just so eventually ill-suited to, to sort of the growth prospects of the, of the company. But, you know, within, you know, off your website, it says within two years, you opened your facility in Canton. And then two years later, you had the beer garden on the Rose Kennedy Greenway uh, downtown. Uh, and then, you know, in 2018, you opened, you know, the Thompson Place flagship restaurant. Uh, then you know, that same year, the, you know, the farm in North Stonington, 2019, the Fenway Tap Room, 2000. And then, you know, why not? Because, you know, 2021, you open another 500 seat restaurant in Brewery and Tap Room in Canton. You know, yeah, why this, not? What are you thinking with all of this? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I think we're crazy. Yeah. Sometimes I think we're having a great time. Sometimes I think like this is a moment in time and we do have the opportunity. We get present, you know, it's funny. Um, I guess, I guess I will share. So that first shift to Canton, for example, there was definitely a really pivotal moment for us where we stopped operating out of like, making decisions out of anxiety, fear, necessity, where like, we have to do this or we won't have a future. We have to do this to secure some sort of stability. Um, And so actually the Fort Point location, which you referenced, like Thompson Place, um, are crazy awesome. I'm heading there this afternoon. I love it. Mm -hmm. Restaurant. 
um, that was the third location that we actually looked at and negotiated for in the neighborhood. And there was a point where I was actually negotiating another lease and it was out of necessity. Like we knew that the location on Congress Street was not set up for a strong and stable future. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's not functional. There was definitely no element of like true hospitality there. Like going back to the beginning to our, our vision, our goals, we wanted to create places where people could come and have a great time and hang out and enjoy our beers. But like, that would be kind of on the side of spending time with family and friends and Mm -hmm. in really cool places and locations. And so Congress street was not that, I mean, it definitely served its purpose, but Canton was kind of the next step of that. And, and opening Canton was a real struggle because we've had, so we still occupy that space. That's still where we're producing, Mm -hmm. even though we've opened Royale street now, um, for front of house. And it's going to be a long, I mean, all of these projects take years to see to fruition. Um, but our Shamit location, we've had four landlords there in like five, I think we've been there five or six years. So it flipped before we even took uh, ownership of the space. Yeah. So that was really unstable. We had originally negotiated for 20,000 square feet, which we were like, oh, that's all the room we'll ever need. Yeah. <laughs> so stupid. Didn't know that like one year into Congress Street Operations either. And it got cut to 16,000 before we even occupied oh. it. So, yeah. So that was always kind of a challenge. And one of the reasons that we have been pursuing Forever Home, Royale Street for so long is just so we could have control. And again, it's that kind of like sink or swim, like, okay, you know, if I need a new roof, like I'm responsible for making that happen, but I don't have to worry about landlords. I don't have to worry about like a tenant next door. I Mm -hmm. I can be in control of that. So I know I'm all over the place here, but going back to Fort Point, um, we were negotiating a lease and the landlord wanted very specific, clear things. And we're trying to kind of dictate our operating um, model as well. And it just didn't feel good. Like we felt like we needed to have the control, the space to be able to understand what our customers wanted, like how we were going to have to operate. And, you know, the pandemic is a perfect um, reason for like, why you need to have good relationships in business as well. And so we ended up walking away from it, from that lease in Fort Point, knowing like, I guess this is it. Like we won't, we might not have an opportunity to stay in Fort Point in our, you know, in our original home for, I guess the rest of our (laughs) trillion days. But thankfully, yeah, go ahead. In 2018, when you opened, you know, Thompson Place, the, you know, the initial flagship restaurant, um, you, you noted earlier, neither of you have a background in restaurants. So how did you, no. and this is not a, you know, for folks who haven't been there, this is not a tiny place. This is a massive, no, is massive not. space. Yeah. It's 18,000 square feet. It's three floors. Um, it is, yeah, 500 seats. It's 
crazy. And you're not just um, doing you're not just doing chicken tenders and and samplers. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing is that no. this is a this is a fine dining establishment. This is a this is a higher end place. So how did you decide that you I mean, do you immediately go out and hire people who know what they're doing or, or yes. do you just jump yes, in? Yes, that is it? what you do. <laughs> no, that is definitely not what we, so knowing that and, you know, that location, obviously it's, <laughs> it is huge and it is ambitious and we're still now actually trying to get to the point where we can operate fully post pandemic um, just because it's we're we're not able to get back to that yet. So I look forward to the days where we can get back to, mm-hmm. you know, how incredible and how much fun and exciting it was when we first opened. Um, but yeah, so we definitely sought out professionals. We worked with consultants and, you know, we made sure that we, you know, hired people who, how many people have run a 500 seat restaurant before? Not very many. Right. So like, it's not like there's this whole pool of people who've had the exact experience that we're looking to do um, or create. And part of it, that's kind of the fun in it is like, I, I don't know, it is a little insane, but like, these are really fun challenges. And we've got such great opportunity to try and do cool and exciting things that people will enjoy and be wowed by and want to come back to and share with their friends that it's worth it. But yeah, man, it's like, a million decisions. You know, I can't walk into a restaurant ever yeah. anymore without like assessing every lighting fixture they mm-hmm. have and seeing like, <laughs> how many they have and where are they placed. And like, I know how much that costs. And yeah. it's, it's it, crazy the detail that goes into it. Yeah. It ruins a little bit of that experience, but uh, you know, yeah. it, um, so one of the th- plans that you have, or one of the things that's another project that's going on is the farm in North Stonington. Yeah. And so, you know, what are the future plans now that you've kind of wrapped up these half dozen or more other projects or they seem to be going? Oh God, they are definitely not wrapped up. I can <laughs> say that we've got, I mean, Royal street is going to be years yes, in pro- yeah. process. Um, but the farm, so the farm was, that was our original dream. Like that's what we wanted. JC and I wanted to have is we wanted to have a real farmhouse brewery that for us, again, like going back to the lifestyle, beer is an agricultural product. Like food is an agricultural product. And we wanted to be able to create an experience where it was truly authentic, where we could, I mean, JC would live in a bubble. If he could be in a self-sustaining bubble where he like grew what he consumed, where he, I mean, like he literally, so the curtains in our first apartment, if he could just kind of self-sustain, he would happily <laughs> do that. Um, I need people, <laughs> but um, it was, you know, our original vision. And obviously that did not, was not going to happen in downtown Boston, but this is where we live. This is our home. This is where we're raising kids. So we have parallel path kind of been on the pursuit of finding our farm for many, many years before we got it. Like we kind of started looking for fun right away and realized, yeah, okay. So maybe this is like our 20 year project. And, you know, again, like we were super fortunate to have an opportunity to get a farm that we fell in love with early in our search. It was actually the very first property we ever looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, And then four years later, we had an opportunity to make that our space. And so, Farming is an investment in time, which Mm. we are both learning, but also had, um, you know, done some research into. So 
JC is the king of YouTube. I fall asleep at night listening to his YouTube videos of like tractors and uh, animal husbandry rotation hmm. practices. So, um, <laughs> you know, we've been learning a lot about how we want to operate, but some of it is trial and error. And I've talked to a number of people who have done similar projects, you know, who like have a farm and a restaurant and nobody who is really, JC's like constantly looking for farm friends in beer and there really <laughs> aren't that many. Um, but we want to be able to grow. So we actually, this year we did release our first beer with heritage corn grown from our farm. We did a lager as part of the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance initiative or to support the initiative of which JC is a founding member. Um, but we are, we get really excited by kind of like the full circle, all of the connections in um, agriculture and sustainability and the environment and like amazing food and beer that we consume. And so we want to find ways to connect all those dots. So we are actively farming. Um, JC goes down and we have one farm manager who lives on the farm property right now. She um, is supported by a neighbor who works for us part-time. And then JC goes down and they work on crop plants together. And he literally harvests kale and brings it up to the restaurant. And yeah, I mean, it's fun and we're learning a lot. Um, one of the things we talked about earlier was, you know, just Boston, you know, in terms of, you know, opening a brewery and uh, just as, you know, generally as a beer city. So I guess the first question I just have for you is, do you think Boston is a great beer city? I, that's a good question. Um, I think it is. I mean, I think that it's different for different people. So, you know, what's your definition of beer and a good beer city? Um, I think that there is, and obviously people in Boston love to drink like a lot. Right. Um, and it's part of the culture, you know, everywhere. Um, but I think that it has grown in appreciation for like great beer and craft beer and, you know, of course, for the longest time, it was Sam Adams and Harpoon, and and they are large craft beer, and that's what craft beer was, right. as you know, like for the first 20 years. And so it has really just been, you know, as you know, like the last decade or so that uh, craft beer has shifted back to what it used to be hundreds of years ago, where it's like little neighborhood breweries supporting, you know, their communities and creating you know, cool experiences. And, and, and I think that that exists in Boston in both like local neighborhood craft beer bars, um, that are fun and unique and, and really connect with the, the specific neighborhoods that they're in. Um, and yeah, I think that there have been a lot of like really great events, like even large scale centered around craft beer in Boston now. So, so yes, does that answer that? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Uh, and why, you know, we had talked a little bit about this earlier, but why do you think historically it's been so difficult to open a brewery in Boston? When you look at, you know, oh, you look at, I mean, there's probably myriad reasons for it, but yeah. you look at, you know, similarly sized cities across the country and they will inevitably have two, three, four, five. I mean, Denver, you know, is technically smaller than Boston population wise. And, you know, the, you know, while Denver is not always the best comparison here because it is such an outlier, there are plenty of mm -hmm. other, you know, you know, Americans, you know, good sized American cities, say the size of Boston that have way more breweries than, than Boston. I think last count, including Trillium, Fenway and, you know, Boston Beer Company's JP plant, there are 13 in the city proper. Wow. 
I didn't even realize that number. So part of it, of course, is like this, you know, goes to so many things that you could say about Boston, but Boston is kind of old school Mm -hmm. and there are a million examples of things that you can learn from how things have been in the city. You know, look at the Big Dig, for example. Like after September 11th, New York City planners were like, how do we not mess up our downtown right. area for as long as you did with the Big Dig? Yeah. Like there are so many examples of Boston just kind of being slow to adapt and evolve. And so at least what we struggled with was licensing yeah. and even – you know, like, I just don't think that they really understood. So a new business and, you know, you see it happen with like any like real innovation in a new industry. You could use, you know, Uber and Lyft as examples of like the transition from taxis and just kind of policy trying to catch up with industry and innovation. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And so, um, at least for us from a licensing perspective, it was very challenging. We just kept hearing like, I don't understand, you know, like that mm, doesn't make sense. Right. This, this is the code. And we're like, no, but that's not what we're doing. Like, that's not what we're doing here. And so we kept trying to explain it and, and we were in, and then, you know, if they just don't want to deal with it. Like then it just sits in a pile. So it's hard to evolve. And I will say that when the administration, we, dealt with an administration change yes, and they recognize the need to kind of move things forward. And so I think I've seen being in Boston and in business, at least a very vocal effort to try and create change. But then there are small things. It just like, it just does take big, huge machines a long time to shift gears. Um, Like a lot of paperwork literally is still done on paper. And so that is not necessary in a digital age, but transitioning systems just takes a long time and it can be expensive too. So, so that was our challenge. I think that trying to keep up with the information age and with technology and with innovation is just hard in an old established government, I guess. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think the change in administration was big. You know, I know when Dorchester yeah. Brewing opened um, yeah. in the you know su- sort of southern part of the city that, you know, you know Mayor Menino probably would not have been there, but uh, Mayor Walsh was there, even though he doesn't drink. Right. So he was right. there cutting the ribbon. So yes. um, it is good to see that we've had some changes. Um, but you had, you had noted, you know, Trillium obviously has faced many challenges over the course of its existence, whether it's its growth or new projects or just frankly just getting open uh, in the first place, and obviously maybe the biggest one that you've faced at this point that's still ongoing is is the pandemic, you know, with all yeah. of these different establishments, including, you know, restaurant, you know, how did COVID impact Trillium? And, you know, how did you navigate that situation? What have you learned from it? So many things. Um, obviously, like everybody else, like shook us to our core. I mean, I still like right now, like my chest is heaving, just kind of like remembering the anxiety of the early days and kind of like how we carried through. Um, It was awful for everyone. And, you know, we're no different than anybody who was afraid for their lives and for people they loved and wondering, like, is this it? Like, is this the end of my business? Like, is that it? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we were 
I don't know, we, we were looking at that and seeing it coming and just really shaking, like physically shaking about it. But that said, JC and I are planners. We are data oriented. We are, I've got backup plans for backup plans. And, and I mentioned, you know, kind of our passion for continuous improvement. We're always trying to parallel path things. Um, like I've, I've got pivot points planned out for a million ways a situation could go. And this clearly was something you couldn't fully plan for Mm -hmm. in having zero guidance. Like, here's the playbook. This is what you do in a global pandemic when you're shut down. Like, that, that didn't exist. And so we were kind of preparing and looking at numbers, both in terms of the virus itself, but also for our business and understanding like, okay, what are our options? What, what will we do in this situation? Like what happens if this gets shut down? And, and, you know, as you know, we did have to do a layoff in the beginning. And that was like, I physically, I mean, it's not about me, like it's terrible, but I was sick and just heartbroken because I've been laid off before. Actually, I worked for a travel company after September 11th and I got laid off and like, you know, what are you going to do? And so I'm kind of a person who believes in the power of choice and looking for opportunity in, in oppression or just kind of bad shit happens. What are you going to do? Like you have a choice that you can make. There's always something you can do. And so that was what we focused on is what is in our sphere of influence. What can we control and what can we do to help keep our team safe, because that was number one. Um, We stayed closed longer and operated in kind of a more restricted capacity than we were legally allowed to for a period of time, just because like we didn't feel comfortable. And we wanted to ensure that our team was safe and that our customers and our community were safe. So you know, as opposed to like a million things that we've done before where we're going to be the first to try something or try something that has never been done before. This didn't feel like the right time for that. Mm-hmm. This was where we wanted to see and understand what is happening around us. Things are changing so quickly. How do we um, assess and then adapt? And so while we did start with a pretty significant layoff, we were deemed an essential business. So we were able to continue producing beer, Mm -hmm. but then we were like, okay, so we can make beer. Great. What are we going to do? How are we going to get this beer to people safely? And so we brought back almost our, I think our entire production team and we set up systems for safety and like protocols for, um, separation of spaces and responsibilities and team A and team B splits. Like it was really intense. Um, But we were able to start bringing people back pretty quickly, which felt good because we started doing curbside Mm -hmm. and we had a totally contactless curbside experience. And then we started doing home delivery. And that was a totally contactless experience that allowed us to reach people where they were and help them feel comfortable. And truly, like I've heard from so many people, like, thank you for getting me through the pandemic. And, and it's, it feels a little capricious, but like, even if we could provide that, I mean, ultimately, like we make beer, we sell experiences, like 
that's what we're creating for people. So if that's what we could fulfill a need for it, I think it was important. No, I think it, I think it definitely was. And it helped, you know, folks who were kind of trapped in their house without, you know, much positivity, without much optimism and outlook. And then to have, you know, you know, a product that you're passionate about that, uh, you know, frankly, was not always the easiest one to get, you know, you know, delivered to your door. That was, that was, that was a big thing for people, for folks. Yeah. 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 Thank you. In the past year, um, you know, the beer industry has experienced a growing reckoning in several areas, including racism and sexism. Uh, yeah. More specifically recently, the, you know, Brianne Allen's rat magnet Instagram account stories of sexism and misogyny and discrimination in the beer industry. What is your response to what you've seen so far? Um, that's so broad and open-ended. I have so many thoughts and yeah, feelings I mean, about could, it. Yeah, I mean, we can drill down, but it just just to sort of start. I mean, it was so one. It's not a surprise. Right. I don't know literally one woman who has not experienced sexism or harassment in their lives, period. So, you know, I'd start, I'd start with that, like that it, I appreciate that there is a conversation happening around it. And for longer than, you know, Brienne's stories, like, yes, it's finally being addressed in craft beer right now, but it's not just craft beer, like every industry experiences this, everyone. And so, of course, you saw, you know, we all saw the Me Too movement start however many years ago that was, and that created kind of the first true reckoning. Um, And maybe it helps make it okay to talk about. I don't really know. You know, it's so, it's so hard to know, like, how things are going to change if you don't, if you don't talk about it. So, you know, with Brian's stories, and I've talked to Brian a lot, and we are participating in Brave Noise. Mm -hmm. And um, so, that started with a, you know, question about sexism, just out of general frustration at a moment in time, and it really evolved. And so, you know, the harassment and really like the violence that came out of that was very triggering for me personally, um, and also for some members on our team, but for JC too. And so we started having this conversation, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement. I guess that's like a year and a half ago now. Mm -hmm. I'm like losing track of time. But um, when that started, we have always been kind of apolitical as it relates to like beer and marketing. Like we don't make political statements on our platforms because beer is for everyone. But Black Lives Matter was the first time that we really felt like this isn't political. This is not um, you know, a red or blue issue. This is an issue of humanity and social justice. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's what this is too. We've long advocated for equality for women, but just like general equality. And so after, you know, when Black Lives Matter was happening and we were home and with our kids and, and having these conversations here, that's where we started having a conversation publicly. And so that was the first time that we posted about a social justice issue. And, and the response from our team alone was so inspiring um, and motivating. And of course we got like the ridiculous hate messages about it. Like, of course we did. Um, 
it felt like that stopped, that didn't matter. That, that wasn't important to us anymore. And it felt more important to really be advocating for what we feel is right and the environment that we want to live in and be able to create and provide for people. And so, um, you know, with Brianne's stories, I've, I've had extensive conversations with her and, and I've talked to Ash of Women of the Revolution who we're trying to coordinate our release event with for Brave Noise. Um, but it really encouraged more conversation for me and JC at home. Um, cause JC is like, <laughs> there's no way about it. JC is a white male right. and he is, you know, the stereotype in craft beer and in America and just, you know, he is the least <laughs> racist or sexist person I know. Um, like it's just, we, it is who we are. When people tell me I'm lucky that I have somebody who like JC, who's so supportive of, me and my career and ambitions, like I counter that because I'm not lucky. Right. I chose to be with somebody who aligned with my values. Like I would never be with somebody who was just placating me with like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Right. Um, so what JC realized was like, he was always really uncomfortable. Like I'm a white male. What can I contribute to this conversation? Like I can't, I don't feel right making it about me. Um, he realized that like, just that complacency is is being complicit. And so he used that as an opportunity recently to share with our team, like, um, of course I've experienced um, harassment in craft beer. And we had an experience once that I didn't even know happened, as a matter of fact, like I didn't hear it. But we were at an event that we were really honored to be invited to and excited to participate in. And JC heard some brewers make some inappropriate comments about me and some other women who are around. And he was really uncomfortable and was like, let's go. Like, let's just yeah. go back to the hotel. Didn't share it with me actually for a really long time. And so um, I'm just kind of sharing this story of his that he did share with our team recently, but um he like, he felt really bad about that. Yeah. And so it didn't come up until we were asked to do a project with that brewery and he had to say no. And he had to explain to a friend of ours why we wouldn't work with them. And so, you know, I am definitely not pro cancel culture in general, but like I, we have values that we need to stick by for our own integrity, for the integrity of our team and for the trust for our customers. And so we are very cautious about the people that we align with in business and just kind of like for brand, you know, alignment, mm -hmm. like just, it's important to us to share values with people. And so we've started to speak up and we have always kind of, you know, promoted equal opportunity internally at Trillion. Trillium. We have anti-harassment policies for our team and we do anti-harassment trainings and we do management leadership development and we make our vendors sign anti-harassment policies, like all in the sake of safety. And so now we recognize just how important it is to as well speak out about that, no matter what people are going to say. And I, th I think it's interesting that you noted, as many breweries do, that they try to stay out of 
you know, any kind of public discussions of social justice issues or political issues or anything like that. And it's understandable trying to, you know, selling a consumer based product, trying to appeal mm-hmm. to the largest possible audience. Um, but, you know, somewhat recently, uh, Trillium has, you know, and, and specifically yourself have kind of branched out and tried to expand your voice with, I think, what I could be called the Mrs. Trillium brand. Um, can you mm-hmm. talk to me about, you know, sort of what is the purpose of kind of setting up this own, I don't even know if it's a separate brand or sort of ancillary or just you know, complementary and what you're looking to do with it? Because, you know, you, you know, in the last, you know, few months or so, you've done programming for, you know, Women's History Month and, yeah. and, and, and coordinated and created some conversations and learnings with, you know, you know women business leaders and, and, yeah. and tried to do a lot of these projects. You know, is this, you know, along those lines of, of kind of expanding, you know, Trillium's, Trillium's voice uh, into the community? Yeah, that's funny to hear you put it like that. And I appreciate that recognition. Um, thank you for kind of highlighting those things. That is, it's funny to think of myself as Mrs. Trillium as a brand. Because like I said before, JC and I, like the Tejos and Trillium, it's just like, this is us. This right. is who we are and how we live our lives. And so um, Mrs. Trillium, it's funny, I created that Instagram account. I don't even know how many years ago because, you know, I'm sure, you know, I had just my personal account that I posted like our cool startup stuff and pictures of my kids. And, and as Trillium began to get more popular, of course, people like want to know more, like they want to see more. And so I was starting to get a bunch of follow requests from total strangers that I was like, ah, I I mean, I post my kids here. I feel uncomfortable with this. (laughs) So I created Mrs. Trillium. Like, hey, you want to see all things beer? Maybe sometimes I'll bake cookies for the team. Like, that's here. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I mean, like, I have a small little following. But um, what I've always tried to do is really show the love behind Trillium. Like, show what, like, fuels us, like, the soul of Trillium on my account. Because you can imagine... Trillium Brewing as a media channel, like we have four open locations Mm. and we have a farm and we are constantly trying and we do events everywhere. And so there is a ton of stuff we want to share. And it's hard to do that without flooding feeds or diluting Mm. the message. And so what I have been able to focus on is kind of the supporting stuff that like really drives us and that we feel super passionate about and share that to at least just the audience that's interested in it. So, you know, again, like we've done a lot of these initiatives for several years, but I I just think we didn't share it because one, we did it like, because it was self-gratifying. Like we enjoyed participating in these fundraisers, these philanthropies, like these really important missions that are like so core to our team and and who we are. Um, But I think there are a lot of people that want to see that stuff and do appreciate it. And and now we're getting kind of that feedback. So um, yeah, so that's what I hope to continue sharing and to be able to use the platform that we have to highlight the impressive work that other people Mm -hmm. are doing, people that might not have uh, loud voices or strong followings themselves that we can say like, hey, there are some really impressive and fascinating people doing unbelievable work. And then we can share that, you know, kind of with our, with our following. 
And we've definitely been seeing that recently through the Trillium channels with you know a lot of collaborations, especially with you know Brockton Beer Company here in Massachusetts, or um, you know I know you have an, a, a pop up event coming up soon here with Marcus yeah. Baskerville, um, yeah. and you're just doing a lot of things along those lines. But to sort of close out here, you've had all of these different projects over the last you know again what feels like 15 years or longer, uh, <laughs> but is but all been you know you know compacted in this tiny eight year you know crazy space what you know what are the plans for the future is it to just focus on you know what you're working on right now the projects that you mm-hmm. have you know that as you said are going to still take years to to come to full fruition and, and perhaps are just always ever evolving but you know what other are there other grand plans are there new locations are there what uh, what other crazy things do you guys have planned because it <laughs> doesn't sound like you you two sit on your hands very well so many things andy so many things <laughs> Um, well, I've already, you know, it's obvious, but Royale Street is going to take years. You're going to see that place evolve over the next few years in time to be like, I mean, first of all, like more functional and a better work environment for our team. Like I can't wait until we can bring our entire production team over from Shamit. So we're all under one roof. Um, so that will be a few years in process. Um, also, publicly available already, but like we have new licenses at Royale street. So like, Mm -hmm. as you know, you know, we launched soak seltzer recently, but we're going to be making a lot of other cool stuff. And so we look forward to that experimentation and building out the facilities and the infrastructure and the creative element that will fuel those. We have a lot more space for activities now. So, um, really fun events that we have planned and then again like the farm we have just literally like grazed the surface of what we will be able to do with both the agricultural program but also um a new property and experience so um and then as it relates to new locations i get offered we get offered opportunities a lot and so I have plenty on my plate right now, but we do have a team that's really excited and inspired by these things. And of course, for any location that I'm only leasing right now, you know, we have lease terms. So I'm always kind of looking to see what would be a cool new neighborhood or like a passionate project that we, you know, or even our Fenway project. I had said at that time, I'm done with new projects. Like I, I think my team wrote it down and marked the date, sure. like no more locations. And then we got presented with that opportunity. And that um, 401 Park is the building JC and I met in. Oh, really? And yeah. And if it hadn't have been for delays, we would have opened like around our 10th wedding anniversary. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, that's so romantic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know that myself and plenty of others are excited to see, you know, what Trillium has to offer in the future. We you know, are very much looking forward to getting back into these spaces, especially the new spaces. Um, and I just want to thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much, Annie. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. 
You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.